Robinson says he mixes the group up from time to time, and believe it or not, I, I try to do the same thing. But it's a real challenge because, of course, the diversity of a congregation is almost endless. The circumstances and the experiences and the biases and the questions that each person brings are unique. And so although Haddon Robinson's recommendation is good and it's helpful, unfortunately, it can't accommodate everybody. But one thing that makes me feel better about all of this is that whatever the demographic makeup of an audience, the age, the gender, ethnicity, economic class, whatever the mix, whatever the various profiles represented in the congregation, the truth is, at bottom, there are two, and only two, kinds of people in the world. There's the quick and the dead. I'm not referring to a movie. I'm not referring to those who are fast or quick on the draw and fleet of foot as opposed to those who are deceased. I'm actually talking about a passage in the book of Ephesians, actually in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Take a look. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, what does that have to do with the quick and the dead? Well, notice that same verse as rendered in the King James Version. I have it for you on the screen. God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened. That is, made alive, hath quickened us together with Christ. You see, the Bible is teaching there are really only two kinds of people the quick and the dead, the spiritually alive and the spiritually dead. Two and only two. Now, by the way, I just quoted the King James Version. Most of us here have something called the New International Version. Those of you that are unfamiliar with the Bible and its transmission process, you may think there are all sorts of versions of the Bible and that, there are sub, that they're substantively different from one another. But that is, that's absolutely not true. And the main reason we don't use the King James Version is because its old English uses dated words like, like quickened that are not used the same way now in our, in our language. But we, it's not because it's substantively different from the New International Version, which has updated language. And so every Sunday, including this one, I'm speaking to two kinds of people. And unfortunately, neither of those groups, the, the spiritually alive and the spiritually dead, neither group, whichever one you fit into, thinks that today's passage is speaking to them. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now, when you read that ugly picture, most of you say or think immediately, that may describe the folks in Hollywood, that may describe the folks in France, but I'm just your garden variety American. And sure, I make mistakes, but to describe me as, as verse 19 does, as having lost all sensitivity, given myself over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity, continually lusting for more? I mean, come, come on, my behavior is not nearly that bad. And the truth is, you're right. I don't know everyone here, but I'd hazard that few, if any of you, fit that description in your current behavior. But here's why the apparent disconnect. You are not that bad in your behavior. But the Bible teaches that you are that bad in your heart. In the heart that God sees. And the heart which is drawn away from Him and to other desires. And that's why we sometimes read the descriptions of humanity in the Bible and those descriptions are worse than where we might be in our individual lives at a given time. Thankfully for all of us, our behavior is not as bad as it could be. But that's not because at heart we're better than the Bible says. It's because God's common grace restrains the effects of sin. Now, for instance, we live in America in a culture shaped by Christian values. Now, if you've been paying attention at all, you know that that influence is waning by the year. But nonetheless, we have been blessed to live in a country shaped by Christian values, and that has restraining effects on what people do. The mores of society restrict what average people will consider doing. But you put that same person in a subculture where the mores are different and the restraints are fewer, and you watch them go. I mean, after all, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Why? don't have the restraints. This is what everybody does. By the way, it's no accident that they locate things like strip clubs near airports. People are there from out of town. People won't know me. I'm in a different subculture. I can let some of those restraints go. One person has written astutely Man has a conscience that will sting if he does anything to violate it. That's part of God's restraining influence on all that we might do. Our conscience. Man has a conscience that will sting if he does anything to violate it. And our performance of evil will be tempered and restrained by the very pride that condemns us. We often refrain from performing evil actions because self-respect prevents us. We have an image of goodness that we try to live up to. But the inclination is there. 
Take away the props of self-respect. Remove the sting of conscience, and we'll do anything to justify ourselves, to gain what we want, to serve our own ends, to accrue power, etc. And this, of course, is why people sin in secret and why they whisper behind each other's backs rather than confront directly or reasonably. Such actions reveal their recognition that what they're doing, what they're doing to get what they want is evil. Yet rather than not do it, they do it secretly as though God is fooled. Jesus knew that most people will never commit an actual homicide. And that's why Jesus said, if you have hatred, you remember what he said? If you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already. This is why we've all found ourselves saying at some point, after observing the behavior of someone we thought we knew, well, that's out of character for him or her. No, it's not out of character. He or she has just been placed in the right circumstances to expose that aspect of their character. And the classic case is the church-going guy or gal who conforms outwardly to the church culture, follows the rules, written and unwritten, castigates those who don't, and then the guy leaves his wife for a younger chick. And we all go, what happened? But all along, he was an approval junkie. And when, for whatever reason, he got tired of pursuing it at church, he found it somewhere else. Somewhere and from someone other than Jesus. And what the Bible is telling us is not that all of us, or even most of us, actually fit this profile to the T in Ephesians chapter 4. But that each of us could, and in our heart of hearts, we all do fit the profile. It's saying, this is where, given time and opportunity, our hearts will lead us. This is why comparing your behavior to somebody else's behavior and saying that makes me better before God isn't going to work because God knows your heart. The truth is every last one of us puts on an act of sorts with our behavior. But God knows our hearts. And God knows that at heart we are just like the person that we're comparing ourselves to. It's not, friends, whether or not we have arrived at where our hearts can lead us. The issue is what road are we on? Are you on the road described in verses 17 through 19? That if left unrestrained, does indeed lead there. And perhaps that is indeed the road you're on. But the good news is, in the words of those great theologians... Led Zeppelin. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. But that time will run out. Today, 
tomorrow, next year. But the fact that you are here means there's indeed still time to change the road you're on. In Ephesians 4, we have the contrast between two kinds of hearts that ultimately lead to two different kinds of lives. In chapters 1 through 3 that we've completed looking at together over several months, this book lays out all it is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the new community that he has formed in this thing called the church, God's new society. And then after laying all of that out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, chapter 4 and verse 1 begins. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live lives worthy of the calling that you have received. So chapters 1 through 3 lay out that calling, all that God has done to call us out of the world and to himself. Now we've got to live in a way that's worthy, that is, as we saw when we looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago, consistent with the calling we've received. And to live consistent with this calling means two things in chapters 4 through 6. It means first, that we live in a united, unified way in God's new society, the church. And so chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, that we just completed last week, tell us that we are to live unified as brothers and sisters in God's thing, new thing called the church. But now beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4, all the way to chapter 5 and verse 21, we're given the second way that we live consistent with the calling that we've received. It's to live pure lives. We're called to live in unity, but now we're going to begin to see today and over the next several weeks, we're also called to live in purity. So let's ask God to help us as we look at, begin looking at the pure lives that God has called us to live in contrast to the rest of the culture. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for telling us in your word who we are, who you are, what our problem is, and what you have done to redeem us from it. We ask you, Lord God, to help us as we look at your call to live distinct, holy, different lives from the world around us for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. Now I invite you to look at the outline that we provided for you in your program. And I've outlined these verses from 17 to 24 this way. First of all, the Bible teaches that we were in the world, but not of the world. Now, we were in the world. The truth is we're still in the world. And at one time, before coming to Christ, we were also not just in it physically, but we were of it. Now, why are we not? What's the problem with that? Why should that be something that's, that's past tense? What's the problem with being of the world? Well, the problem is that there is something wrong with the world. The Bible makes this very clear in a number of places. I want to share some of those with you. Romans chapter 12, the Bible says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. 
in the very book that we're studying now in chapter 2. Ephesians says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The Bible calls us to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. It tells us further, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then lastly and famously, the Bible says do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, it comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. You see, friends, it is, it is not that we're simply located in the world, but rather before coming to Jesus Christ, we were not only having had our existence here physically, this was our sphere of activity, but we were of the world in the sense that we loved what the world system offered. We prioritized and gave our allegiance to what the world offers. And God has called us now out of the world to a new allegiance and new priorities and new thoughts and thus new behaviors. Now, let's look a bit deeper at what's wrong with the world. Clearly, there's something wrong with it, right? From the Bible standpoint. But what's wrong with it? Well, I have in your outline that what's at foundation, what's wrong with it is this. The world's thinking is contrary to truth. The world's thinking is contrary to truth. The world as it is, and everyone who comes into it by nature, comes into it, Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins, living according to the pattern of this world. Why? Because first of all, the way we think is contrary to truth. We all live, we all live out of a sense of identity. That is, who we believe we are. What we believe the future holds for us, and so on. And many have come to believe, from a worldly standpoint, falsely, that this life is all that there is. It's just one example of worldly thinking. This life is all there is. Now... If circumstances then in this life are subpar, then I will act upon that belief. If this is really all there is, and what is right now for me is not what it should be in my mind, I'll act upon that. You all been watching the news this past week? Have you seen the riots going on in Britain? The leader of the opposition Labour Party in Britain asked regarding the week's rioting he said why are there people who feel they have nothing to lose and everything to gain from wanton vandalism and looting because we all live out of a sense of identity and if you have come to believe that this is all there is and there ain't nothing better in the future you'll act on that belief 
And when given the right time and the right circumstances, that belief will manifest itself. That's what's happened in Britain. Britain is paying the price for promoting gang culture. And oh, by the way, we will as well. Because ideas have consequences. And the world lives contrary to truth. What we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God and the world and others has effects on how we behave. And when put in different and sometimes difficult circumstances, we can behave in ways that would horrify us right now. From a biblical standpoint, the brain, the way we think, is connected to the heart. Now, not the physical organ, but in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the entire person. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, the Bible says. And so our gray matter is affected by something prior to the initiation of thoughts in the brain. It's actually affected by our hearts, which have desires. Now notice chapter 4 again. In verse 17, it says that the Gentiles, and that just means the, the pagans, those who were outside, were at one time outside the family of God. At the end of chapter 2, there's a long treatise from verses 11 through 22 saying that the Gentiles have been brought into the family of God gloriously. That includes you and me. But the Gentiles, prior to coming into the family of God and being changed by God, are futile in their thinking, end of verse 17. And then it says, verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding and thus separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. But notice this, that ignorance is due to the hardening of their hearts. And so it has, it has an intellectual effect in terms of thinking, but that thinking is first affected by an obstinate heart, a hardened heart against God. Biblically, our thoughts proceed from our desires. And then out of our hearts, our mouths speak. That's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then it's out of our, our hearts that we behave the way we do. Here's the chain biblically. Our desires have effects on our thoughts. Our thoughts issue forth in our words and our actions. Desires, thoughts, words, actions. Desires, thoughts, words, actions. And so though this passage in verse 18 speaks of the ignorance that is in them, it's willful ignorance rooted in a darkened heart. At the end of verse 18, the word for hardening, is a Greek word that came to refer to a, a, an especially hard substance, like marble. And that's what's being referred to here. And so John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, says this, First comes hardness of heart, then their ignorance, being darkened in their understanding, and next and consequently, they're alienated from the life of God, since He, God, turns away from them. Until finally they become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, 
That's the road you're on. And he knows it. And God is so serious about this, this road and its potential consequences that he repeats it in Scripture. This is not an isolated passage. The Bible says this over and over again. Famously, it says the same sort of thing in Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to show you on the screen. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to show you on the screen how Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4 actually parallel each other. And they each have four stages on this road toward decadence that all people are on, even if the mores of the society restrain those, unless they get on the different road that only Christ can place them on. Four stages. Here they are. The first stage is obstinacy. And it's recorded in Romans 1 in words like this. Verse 18. By their wickedness they suppressed the truth. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. So Romans 1 talks about this first stage an obstinate, hardening against God. No desire for God, a desire to be our own God. Ephesians 4 says it's due to the hardness of heart. So there's this obstinacy, but then there's a, a second stage. Darkness. And Romans 1 says they became futile in their thinking. And their senseless minds were darkened. They became fools. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Dark thinking, without light, not seeing things straight, wandering, groping in the, in the darkness, blindly. Ephesians 4 speaks similarly. The futility of their thinking, darkened in understanding. It speaks of the ignorance that is in them. You see, friends, the world's thinking is contrary to truth. And because the world's thinking is contrary to truth, in your outline, I say the world's behavior is inconsistent then with truth. And I'm going to show you stages three and four then relate to the behavior that comes from the sinful thinking. But the world's behavior is inconsistent with truth. The world's thinking is contrary to it, and as a result, the way it behaves is inconsistent with truth. Verse 19, lost all sensitivity, given over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity, continual lust for more. What does the Bible say about that? Once a person in their hardened now desires begins to think in the darkened way that results from that, obstinacy and darkness, and then there's this third stage, God judges. And Romans 1 says in that judgment, God gives them up. And for this reason, God gave them up. It says three times in that passage. God judges by, now get this, letting people go down the road that their hearts already desire. He lifts the restraints. And what you see in the behavior then of those people is not that those people have changed, but simply that the restraints have been removed so that they can now move further down the road upon which they had embarked much earlier. Ephesians 4 says they become alienated from the life of God. And the fourth stage 
is just a wanton abandonment of all the restraint, recklessness. Romans 1 says they give themselves then to impurity and dishonorable passions, shameless acts, improper conduct, all manner of wickedness. And then verse 19 of Ephesians 4, as we've already seen. There's something wrong with the world. And at heart, what's wrong with the world is the way the world sees itself, sees the world, sees God, the way it thinks. The way it thinks, then, gives rise to the way it behaves. We were in the world. And at one time, we were also of the world. But God has called us out of the world system. And He has called Christians now to live different sorts of lives. Lives that are not in line with the world's pursuits and the world's allegiances. We were in and of the world, but God, if you have come to Him through Jesus Christ, has given you a change of heart. At bottom, it's a heart problem. And He's given you a change of heart, right? That changes the way we think and changes then the way we talk and the way we act. And if you're on the road, if you're on the road that leads to all of the stuff that Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 talk about, You haven't arrived there, granted, but you're on it. If you're on that road, you know what you need? You need a profound change of heart. The only one who can provide that change of heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to show you how you can have that change of heart from Him before we leave. But if you'll take a look at your outline then. We were in the world and we were of the world, all of us at one time, some of us perhaps still, But now, secondly, in your outline, we are still in the world if we've come to Christ, but we are not of the world. Our priorities have changed. Our allegiances have changed. Our heart has been changed. Thus, our thinking is different, and therefore, our words and our behavior are different. And now, in your outline, the Christian's thinking is according to truth. And what we're going to see here about the Christians now, new thinking, and thus new behavior, I want you to know, dear friend, is not optional. It's amazing and saddening how many professing Christian people think it's optional as to whether or not I live as Jesus has called us to live. It is not optional. Now, how do I know it's not optional? <laughs> Take a look again at verse 17. I tell you this, I who? The great apostle, Paul? God's representative, his authoritative representative to pen these words to the Ephesian church and by extension to us, I, Paul, tell you this. I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. God has said, I have called a new society together in this thing called the church. I have called it to be characterized by unity, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. And I have called it to be characterized by purity as well. Unspotted from the world. It's not optional. I insist on it. I tell you this. You must no longer, says the great apostle. 
And thus says God. The Christian's thinking is then according to truth. Notice that in verses 17 through 19 of the former way of life, of the Gentile way of life, of the pagan way of life, it's, it's all about their minds and their understanding and their ignorance. But in contrast, verse 20 of chapter 4, you, however, did not come to now notice, know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Do you all see in verses 20 and 21 how important what you know is? How important what you've been taught is? How important truth is? One commentator says, Scripture bears an unwavering testimony to the power of ignorance and error to corrupt, but also to the power of truth to liberate, ennoble, and refine. Let me ask you, what do you know? What have you been taught? What truth have you apprehended that should cause you to act different than the world? How do I react differently if I know that I'm a child of the Father? <laughs> Friends, does knowing that you're a child of our Heavenly Father make a difference in how you behave? How does knowing that my dad, and I'm not trying to be flippant, but my Heavenly Father knows everything, how does that affect the way you behave? How does knowing that my future is secure, come what may on this earth, affect the way you behave? Do you need to worry? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Do not worry. Do not worry what saying, what shall I eat, what shall I drink, what shall we wear? And then Jesus says this, or because the pagans run after these things. You see, Jesus says that's what the pagans do. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what you used to do. But you don't do it anymore. You know why you don't do it anymore? Because we all live out of a sense of identity. And your identity has been radically changed from being alienated from the Father and outside of His family, to being a child of the Father, being adopted into His family, and in His loving care every moment of every day. Does that make a difference in your life? It should make a difference then in how I think, in how I talk, and in how I act. Being taught truth changes the way we think. Jesus said then, sanctify my followers, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them, the word sanctify means make them holy. That's what the word means. Make them different than the world. It's that very passage, by the way, John 17, where Jesus said, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. Sanctify them now, Father. By thy truth, thy word is truth. I wish I had a dime for every time a professing Christian person has said to me, 
But I don't see anything wrong with it, whatever the it is. And you know, friends, you will not see anything wrong with it unless and until our eyes are opened by Scripture, by truth, by learning, by teaching from God's Word. Do you know that? How many times have I said to this dear congregation, unless we adopt our values consciously from Scripture, we will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. You cannot rely on yourself to determine what's good for you, what's bad for you, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. God has given us His book to sanctify us, to make us different, to teach us in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were born, I was born, with a tendency to believe lies. And the world tells lies. And friends, do we think that we will escape the world's heart-shaping effect if we drink it in and do not regularly imbibe God's Word? And as a result, a failure to be sanctified by the truth, to be taught the truth in accordance with Jesus, Christians become worldly. And when Christians become worldly, the church becomes worldly. Right? Because then Christians begin to clamor for worldly stuff in church. Look, I could go forever and you're just, you can thank the Lord that I won't. But if you just have any access at all to what's going on in the evangelical church today and what passes for church, you cannot miss that we're imbibing worldliness. There's a pastor in Seattle who has throngs of people who think he's the greatest thing in the world. He was known for a period of time as the cussing pastor. Now, we've all been celebrating the last couple of years that he's gotten a handle on the cussing part. Thank the Lord for that. But still presents an image that says, you know, since I couldn't become a mixed martial arts guy, I'm doing this preaching gig. I just want, I just want to say to you, friends, that's the trend that is the inevitable, inevitable trend if we are not sanctified by the truth inevitably. That's the way your life will go and that's the way the life of the church will go. I'm letting you know, as I have so many times, over and over, and I don't say this to be unkind, but I want you to understand, as a member of this church or as someone who might be contemplating uniting with this church, understand this. You have joined a church who, by God's grace, is not going to follow the trends of the world. We will not. Why? Because I know that it's God to whom we will give an account. I don't care what the culture thinks about us, ultimately. What I care about, what we should care about, is the approval of Almighty God. That's the kind of church you're in. 
that's the kind of church we want to be. If that's the kind of church you want, thank God. Then let's move it forward together. The Christian's thinking is according to truth. And as a result of the Christian's thinking being according to truth, our behavior then is consistent with truth. Notice verse 22. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be made new, notice how, in the attitude of your minds. And put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now in the verses that follow that we're going to see beginning next week, we're going to be instructed as to what the new man looks like. We'll be reminded as to what the old man looked like. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We're going to finish shortly. But just like those who have never come to God through Jesus Christ need a change of heart, those of us who have come to God need to kill the old man. If you come, if you, come you need to pull the plug on the old man. Okay? <laughs> That's what chapter 4 is teaching us kill the old man. And it's going to describe what the old man looks like. And it's going to tell you what the new man is to look like. The old man is our old nature. When we come to Christ, we are not, we don't become two people. We are one person with two natures. And the Bible implores us to kill the old nature and all of the attributes and characteristics that go with it. Isn't it true, friends, that we're happy to be different? If we think being different will be better. We like to be part of an exclusive group if it offers benefits. And so I ask you, do you think that it's better to be different for Jesus? In my opening prayer, I said, Lord, you've called us to be holy. That's a different life, and it's a better life. Do you believe that? You see, I'm convinced that many Christians don't believe that. They don't think it's a better life. And that's why they pine away for being like the world and want to imbibe the world. But do you believe that being holy as Jesus calls us to be holy is a better life? Supposedly, you made that decision when you came to him. <laughs> when you, remember the R word, repented? <laughs> that means your life following you, going your way, is better than going my way. That's what repentance means, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And when you came and you repented, supposedly that's what you were saying, it's better to follow Jesus. Have we forgotten that? But it's not automatic. We have to be reminded, don't we? Because we easily get sucked into the world. And that's why you have passages like this, to remind the Ephesians, to remind you and me. Why do we struggle to live this new life? It's because we still have the old nature. We still like the appeal of the world. We want to be liked and to be admired and to be appreciated. And the worst thing for many of us is to be thought to be different or somehow weird. And Jesus says, it's okay for my sake to be thought of as being different. And so what's our take-home truth? I have it for you in your outline. Christians are called to live different, different from the culture. 
Two kinds of people, the quick and the dead. Are you alive in Jesus? If what I've said today resonates with you and you say, that's the life I want. That's how I want to live. That's how I want to behave. That's how I want to speak. That's the road I want to trod. That's an indication of the life of God in you. Let's grow in it together then over the weeks ahead. But if you have heard these words and you said, what are these people talking about? Really be weird for Jesus? Be different, walk to the, march to the beat of a different drummer? Then you've never come and, had your heart, and your heart been changed. But that can happen now, now in this moment. And how is that? Recognize who you are. You are that person we saw in Ephesians 2, like we all were, dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Needing spiritual life, that's what Jesus has come to provide. Paying the penalty for your sin, living the life you should have lived. So you recognize who he is and what he has done for you, and then you repent. You simply say to him, Lord, I want to follow your way of life, not my way of life. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. There's no magic formula. We're going to bow in just a moment. You pray from your heart to God, I'm a sinner. I recognize that I'm on a path that could lead me anywhere. I ask you to help me as I change my path to follow you. Forgive me of my sin and take my life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder in your word and this challenge in your word to me and to your people to be holy as you are holy. We cannot do it in our own strength. It is only done by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God that we have the gracious word of God to be reminded of what you have called us to be. And we have the Holy Spirit that chides us, that convicts us, as it has me and as undoubtedly it is many brothers and sisters right now. It is your grace that is telling us, go the path that I've designed for you. Learn in the coming weeks the truth as it is found in Jesus to do that very thing. And Lord, we were all the recipients of your initial saving grace at one time. Hearing the gospel in some form from someone such that you drew us out of the world into yourself. And we pray that you're doing that with some folks right now. Folks who came in here as part of the category of the spiritually dead. Who will leave here spiritually alive. Only by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.